Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a Metal Gear Solid audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, via Fulton, of course, and finally face down the technological behemoth that is the Metal Gear franchise. I'm no hero. Never was. I'm just an old killer, hired to do some wet work. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. Hi, I'm Brian. Today's episode is Paradise Lost, our sixth episode on MGS4 Guns of the Patriots from 2008. Today we will be rendezvousing with Eva, now going by Big Mama and her resistance. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Meryl marries, we know the fate of Master Kazahiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. We wrapped up our last episode with Snake's next objectives. Locate Big Mama in Eastern Europe, and with her, the corpse of Big Boss. Snake begins his mission while Sonny and Naomi set out for Dr. Madnar, who can help Raiden get the medical treatment he needs. This sector is being monitored by the U.S. PMC Ravensword, and they're hip to the fact that Snake is making his way into the city. Snake arrives via train, and as always, we stand a public transit using King. After some shenanigans at the security checkpoint, Meryl arrives to help Snake through, but notice that Snake's looking much more youthful now. Thanks to Octopus's face camo, Snake is able to wear his young face again, and the young Solid Snake face camo, both with and without bandana, are now unlocked and available to the player. Old Snake might have some daddy vibes, but young Snake is still a fucking smoke show. Anyway, don't want to linger too long here, but some necessary plot set up. After the Middle East, the president and U.S. government are now aware and worried about Liquid's insurrection, and actual U.S. troops, an Army-Marine joint operation, have been mobilized to take him on by force with Merrill at the helm. In a way, Merrill sees this as a way to save Snake from his burden, his last punishment. Much like Raiden said, it's his turn to save Snake in the last act, Meryl says the same here. Snake's not convinced, though. Things are never straightforward with Liquid, or in a Metal Gear Solid game, and even with the numbers on her side, Liquid might not be so easily defeated. Snake still sees himself as the best chance of keeping Big Boss's body away from the insurrectionists and putting a bullet in Liquid's skull. He is an old killer just here for some wet work, like the sound clip we played you in with. Snake. What you're trying to do, it's not a mission. I know. It's not justice. It's a hired hit. In our MGS4 intro episode, emailer Cassie said MGS4 pulled her in because of the lived relationships between these characters. Meryl and Snake have a long history together, but in this scene, we see a warm greeting chill into a frosty departure. 
perhaps symbolically captured by Meryl starting the convo by lighting Snake's cigarette for him, but ending it by telling him to face reality and calling him Old Snake. It's a bitter goodbye. Meryl admits to having loved him once, but warns him that she will stop him if he gets in her way. Snake takes to the streets here, and so resumes the gameplay. The player needs to locate and tail a Paradise Lost Resistance member to Big Mama's hideout over the course of several maps. The actual route and number of enemy patrols vary significantly by difficulty here. You'll have to be a little more creative on the higher difficulties, as you'll have to cross rivers and go under bridges. Yeah, I think uh, I remember watching, this time through I watched like a higher difficulty one, and it was much, much different than the version I remember playing, which was kind of boring. Yeah, in the like, I think on the normal and easy difficulties, it's basically two to three maps um, without anything, you know, much more than just uh, basically having to trank guards and let the guy get past you. Um, but then uh, on the more difficult uh, settings, I think it's up to like four or five maps that you don't even see on the lower difficulties. Yeah, I, I there are a lot of people. There's always been that thing with Metal Gear that were like European Extreme is the only way to play, and I don't agree except for this. I think. Uh, for what it's worth, I have uh, beat this game on the hardest difficulty with no kills. That's probably the best I've done. I have not done it for too many of the other Metal Gear games. Uh, to give you kind of a summary of these uh, tailing mission maps that you're working through, the environment itself is a European city streets at night that are vaguely patterned after Prague. Um, it's very foggy. It gives a very noir feeling, um, especially with Snake in his trench coat, um, evoking films everywhere from Double Indemnity, but also Deckard and Blade Runner with his, you know, trench coat. Does Kojima like that movie? I've never, I've never heard him mention it. Yeah, Kojima's never talked about Blade Runner or any other Ridley Scott film. Uh, I can tell you, it's definitely not a lot there, probably because uh, when I started playing Deus Ex: Mankind Divided, the first thing I thought was like, "Oh, this looks like the city part in Metal Gear, in Metal Gear Solid 4. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it's it's well done, I would say. Yeah, and I think along with that, it's supposed to be evocative of settings of 60s spy thrillers yeah. with a Cold War aesthetic, yep. um, especially because you're working along, you know, essentially former Iron Curtain kind of countries, um, you know, like you're passing secret signals between East and West Germany. Um, there's also a certain From Russia with Love vibe to it when uh, Bond is kind of sneaking around Istanbul at night um, and, you know, Again, doing more of that nitty-gritty espionage work, uh, passing messages and tailing people, uh, less of that more bombastic action. Which is what, like, what Spycraft actually is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Again, I hate to keep mentioning it every episode, but it's very similar to a John le Carre novel. And then the last thing uh, I want to note about the environment is that everywhere you go, there are ravens everywhere, which, you know, it just... Yeah. Foreshadowing, I guess. <laughs> what? I, I never... um, in terms of navigating these maps, you have a couple camo choices. Um, the first is you can stick in your trench coat outfit that you start off uh, this act in. Um, while wearing the trench coat, you will not be able to equip or use weapons. Um, I'm kind of sad that there isn't, uh, what's it called, the handkerchief or the fake cigarette spray like there was in MGS3, like the mm-hmm. only weapons you could use in mm-hmm. the scientist outfit or um, the janitor outfit that you get. You can stick with Snake's face camo, um, but as mentioned in the opening cutscene, the guards are kind of aware of that one. But you can use other face camos that you've obtained. Um, you can use the Raiden or Otacon face camos, which you can actually obtain during uh, the mission brief 
briefing segments if you take the Mark II and run into those characters while they're talking during those cutscenes. Mm-hmm. The way I usually go about it is just, you know, kind of traditional. I just throw on the Octocamo again, and I just kind of stealth through and, you know, crawl and all that stuff through the maps. Um, when you get to the park map amongst the Eastern European setting, um, there's also kind of a statue placement where you can do the statue camo trick uh, that we talked about in one of the earlier uh, episodes on MGS4. Mm-hmm. Uh, the guard behavior in here, uh, basically um, you're tailing this resistance member, but if he comes across a guard patrol or a guard station, um, he'll basically just stop and you're going to have to kind of clear out the guards either by incapacitating them or distracting them in some way. You can kill the guards, but this will often cause the resistance member to flee because he's like, oh, what the fuck? People are dead here. Yeah. And then you kind of have to relocate him and basically retrace your steps. So lethal play is not really recommended for this part. As with most parts of most Metal Gear games. Mm-hmm. And uh, lastly, um, In the later maps, especially on the higher difficulties, you get a lot more Jeep patrols and helicopter spotlights. That gives a very kind of MGSV feel to me, uh, very similar to how Jeeps and helicopters will patrol certain areas in the bigger maps in Mm -hmm. Afghanistan and uh, Africa when you get to them. Uh, For the most part, my thoughts on this segment are I don't mind the tailing mission. Again, I'm okay with some of these kind of gimmicky uh, aspects to the stealth or kind of twists on the stealth. But I do miss that there isn't an actual traditional stealth portion in this act, uh, especially because you can't actually go exploring this map, really. Or if you do, you lose your tail on the guy and you kind of have to go back to square one just to locate him again. Yeah, it's not my favorite. It's not my favorite section for sure. Yeah, I think it's a cool idea. I just think it's it's weirdly it's like overly long and it's also not long enough. It's like not involved enough. Mm -hmm. It's it's yeah, so it's. It's not, it's not a great section to me, but it's, it is one of the truly unique parts of this game, though. Mm-hmm. One of the very few parts of this game that feel like it was made, it's like only exists in this game, which is, you know, nice, I guess. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they come up with a couple different, like, quote unquote, challenges. Um, like, there's a point where the resistance member puts on PMC uniform, and then following him isn't that hard, especially with the solid eye. Um, but they do do things where he'll fall in line with a, you know, a troop of actual PMCs, and you have to be able to distinguish which one is him mm-hmm. versus which one are the PMCs. So, like you say, there's just not enough very challenge in this. Uh, to me, this is basically follow the guy, trank the guards in his way, um, and then just keep following the guy. Um, some of the maps, like I said, get a little harder with Jeep patrols and helicopters, but nothing that you really can't avoid by just sticking to the outsides of the map, yeah. uh, more or less. At the end of these maps, Snake has finally located the Paradise Lost safe house, which just so happens to be a church. Set your explicit symbolism phasers to stun, folks. The unsuspecting resistance member checks his six before entering, but this is Solid Snake we're talking about. He's crouched right behind him in his blind spot and waits for him to open the door before striking. What comes next is personally my favorite choreographed CQC sequence in all of Metal Gear Solid. Snake puts this resistance member in a chokehold, then forces his way into the main hallway, where several more members emerge to surround Snake. You can go into the L1 first-person viewer here to take a look at the opposition, 
but you'll also see MGS3 art hung on the walls, which portends the identity of Big Mama. Snake, using his ensnared captive as a shield, proceeds to non-lethally take out five to six resistance members without breaking much of a sweat. Honestly, Solid Snake hasn't looked more badass than in this moment, as he uses the militia's own weapons to disarm and render them impotent. He even connects on a roundhouse kick, showing us this old man is still pretty spry, and also is a callback of sorts to the third attack in the three-hit strike for Solid Snake in the first two Metal Gear Solid titles. One of the members ends up dropping an apple during this fight, which again, the symbolism is going to be very explicit and heavy-handed going forward. What? That's never happened before. As Snake pushes deeper into the church, his quarry makes herself apparent. Very impressive, CQC, Snake. No doubt about it, he is the legendary soldier. Call me Mama. Big Mama. That's right, it's Big Mama, who we knew from MGS3 as Eva or Tatiana. We're going to get a big info dump here about Patriots, Zero, and what all is going on, but let's first do our character breakdown of the mother of Solid and Liquid Snake. Big Mama, aka Eva, voiced by Lee Merriweather, and yeah, I led right there with the big one. It is revealed to us that Eva was the surrogate mother during Liz and Fawn Tarib and carried both David and Eli to term. In a weird coincidence, the 1998 Metal Gear Solid official mission handbook referred to Liz and Fawn Tarib as the Eve Project in Big Boss's bio. The embryo that bore the twin stakes came from a Japanese woman, which fills in that bit of lore from MGS1 where Vulcan Raven says, The blood of the East flows through you, which is called out in the memory trigger mechanic here. We mentioned during MGS3 that the voice actor for Eva was a pseudonym, but with this Eva, they cast Lee Merriweather, who appears opposite of David Hayter in one of those pregame commercials we discussed a few episodes back. She's depicted in a brown jacket with a trademark revealing neckline, a black choker, and high boots with a Type 17 pistol at her side, which can be unlocked for Snake on subsequent playthroughs. Big Mama is the name she's taken as the leader of Paradise Lost, carrying on the meme of Big Boss, though transformed to include her role in birthing Solid and Liquid Snake. As we discussed with MGS3, generally a fair criticism of MGS games is that a lot of women in the series are often tied to childbearing for plot purposes, and this criticism can be leveled here too. I do like that she has been acting as her own sort of big boss, though, in that her troops are war orphans who have lost it all and had nowhere else to go. What she has done is exactly the sort of activity we will see Big Boss do in later games like Peace Walker and MGSV. The name Matka Pluku is a Czech phrase translating to Mother of the Regiment, and of course, you can see the direct parallel between Big Boss's Outer Heaven and Big Mama's Paradise Lost. Back in 1964, I was ordered to take part in a CIA op called Operation Snake Eater, which concerned a new weapon the Soviets were developing at the time. My mission was to support a certain agent. That agent later became Big Boss, but I knew him as Snake. Snake? Yes, Naked Snake. That was his code name at the time. A name he would give to you, his son. It's weird to me 
like I I like mostly what they do with her in this game, but it is weird to me where it almost feels like a different character in some ways. We're like, which is kind of a different character, but yeah, it doesn't feel it doesn't have the same energy or vibe as no. And I think I think you know the 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 implication is that she's she was fundamentally changed by her experience with Big Boss, and I can buy that. But like, it's just strange because she wasn't fundamentally changed enough to do anything in that game in in three. It's just it's kind of odd, but still a good character. I I don't know. It's just different. Part of it's you know just um. The time passed, but I also don't think Lee Mayweather sounds like uh, whatever the pseudonym was for probably the Little Mermaid actress. Oops, wasn't supposed to say that. Ugh. I think Suzetta Mignette was the name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it's there, it's but. it's uh, the the I don't think we talked about with that with three that the the, uh, the rumor is that it's the um, I forgot her name. I feel bad. The actress who voiced Ariel in Little Mermaid, and she used a pseudonym because Disney would not have approved of her being in a game like that. So. She's one of those people who who does um, still does like voice work for them a lot for like Disney World, so that's probably why. But I don't know if that's true. Um, so it, if if it's tied to Eva's sexuality, I can see that. However, yeah. there is a little bit of Disney crossover in the fact that young Ocelot from MGS three was played by Josh Keaton, yeah, um, who's a very regular voice actor work, and he has been on. Uh, what's it called? He was in Hercules, the 1997 Disney movie. Uh, Hercules is more okay. Let's let's be fair here. Um, little kids are not still going to Disney World to do Hercules stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. Um, fun fact: Josh Keaton also was the voice of Steve Rogers in What If? Because Chris Evans ain't doing that shit anymore. Yep. Or maybe he is. He's voicing you know the real Buzz Lightyear, the one that the fake Buzz Lightyear is. The little media doesn't want you to know about the, the real Buzz Lightyear. Um, but Josh Keaton is more of like a working voice actor, though. Like, I know he mm-hmm, does mm-hmm. Disney stuff, whereas, um, I feel bad. Let me look her name up real quick. Joni Benson. That's her name. She, like, only works for Disney. I think she's like a like a contracted... She's one of the few. That makes sense. Um, but I don't know. I don't know if that's true. That's just the rumor that I, I remember seeing... Uh, and I was looking that up. I remember reading that a few years ago, and I was looking that up again when we were starting off doing stuff with three. But I don't know. I know that that Hater knows who it is because he's a uh, he sent her gifts. He's talked about before, but it doesn't really matter. You know, it's the pseudonym. You don't have we don't have to know who that is. Mm-hmm. But it's definitely a different. St- it just does not the same kind of voice that Lee, Lee, Lee Mayweather has or had. She died, didn't she? I think so. Yeah, unfortunately, she's a, she was a good yeah. actress. It's not really trying to recreate either the cadence or the voice yeah, of which, that original performance, I think. Which you don't have to do. You don't have to do, but it just it does kind of come off a little strangely. That's a problem I think a lot of the big boss games have, too. Uh, trying to connect everything together. We could talk about this more later, but not having Major Zero be around in those games, really just, you have no idea what his motivations really are. And on one hand, I feel like they, but they could have gotten that guy back. I don't know. It's a strange, voice actor continuity is a real weird, is real weird in this series. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's no other major examples of a voice actor changing at any point. No, I can't think of any. <laughs> well, I'm sure we'll talk about that <laughs> a lot, unfortunately. So that's all the character design stuff we have on Big Mama. And most of what transpires in this long cutscene, which has a save break in the middle, is the event since Metal Gear Solid 3 that set up the current Patriots regime. 
If you recall, the philosopher's legacy Eva took from Naked Snake at the end of Snake Eater was a fake, and this mission failure led to her expulsion from the People's Liberation Army in China. Eva disappeared for a while, only to be rediscovered by Big Boss in Hanoi in 1971, which is kind of vaguely touched in the semi-canonical Portable Ops game. From there, she'd be brought into the fledgling Patriots organization with Zero at the helm and the team from Operation Snake Eater making up the rest of the group. To refresh, those members and their roles would be Zero as the brains, Big Boss as the icon or symbol, Paramedic, a.k.a. Dr. Clark, into medicine and genetics, Sigint, a.k.a. Donald Anderson, as arms and digital information specialist. This is who Sigint becomes. <laughs> Revolver Ocelot, uh, the informant, and Eva, the spy. And don't worry, I'm going to give Brian some space to talk about these founding members shortly, but I do want to set them up first. Les Infanteries was the next big mark on Eva's timeline, though Big Boss was big mad about Zero harvesting his genes and left the Patriots thereafter to start Militars Sans Frontieres. Eva was given eight clone fetuses to start, recalling Liquid's super baby spiel from MGS1. Two made it to term, and Eva left the Patriots after that in solidarity with Big Boss. Eva will get a brief mention in Peace Walker, and then is basically off the map for several decades. Eventually, after Zanzibar Land, from Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake, Eva and Ocelot would learn that Zero had recovered Big Boss's corpse and kept him technically alive, the best kind of alive, with nanomachines. They would conspire with Naomi Hunter to kill the remaining members of the Patriots and end their control out of loyalty to Big Boss which is Adam and Eva fighting on behalf of the snake. Hmm. Broadly, this plot of theirs is the undercurrent to all the events of the previous Solid Snake games. They killed the DARPA chief in Shadow Moses, Ocelot's torture oopsie was no mistake, and Dr. Clark was killed just before that event. It's doubtful that Eva was privy to Ocelot's liquid personality deception as she would try to appeal to Adam during this act's climax. But enough of that, plenty of time for all this later, and next episode we will focus heavily on Liquid and the Patriots. Brian, if you got if you got any complaints with what they did with the MGS3 characters, now's your time to say it. I've, I've, already, I've already gone on, I've gone on it several times now. It's just, I don't know, it just doesn't work. I, I've said before, Sigan is fine, A, because you don't really get like a picture of him as like an evil character in any way in MGS1, he's just the, the, the DARPA chief, you know, that's fine. But Dr. Clark, really, it just doesn't, like, paramedic, it's just not, it can't be the same person. It's really the thing that just always stood out to me. It's just, it can't be the same person who was joking about King Kong movies with Snake is now basically the most evil, amoral scientist in the entire Metal Gear universe, which is saying a lot. There's a lot of evil, amoral scientists. It just doesn't work. There's really no thing. It, it really just smacks of him, Kojima, I mean, forcing these characters in, into the lore in some way. And it, it was unnecessary. It just doesn't work. Yeah, the problem with Paramedic is that even in her fictional history here, like she's very much committed to her paramedic thing. Like yes. she invents paratrooping medicine. She sets up a hospital in Seattle. Like there's all sorts of stuff. And granted, those things don't necessarily mean that you're a good person. But the way that this saga depicts kind of what happened to Frank Yeager yeah. and, you know, 
all that stuff is just horrific. And Dr. Clark, who is revealed in this game to be the same as um, paramedic, uh, is really just heavily involved, not in just doing it, but seems to be like kind of leading it. Not like yeah. she was, you know, an unwilling accomplice to all this. I just don't, I don't, it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Her specifically, if, if they hadn't tried to force, I guess, the singing stuff works personally. Like I think that works. Major Zero, you don't, don't I don't, it doesn't, we never get like a full picture of him. And then like, it would have worked otherwise. It's just, it's just paramedic. It doesn't, it doesn't feel right to me. Yeah, I think with Sigint, it kind of works because A, the person who invented the internet is obviously evil. Um, but also if you're going to be ultimately involved in the arms industry, um, you know, it's not that big of a leap to, you know, jump to where we get with the Patriots with him. But again, just the whole, you know, you think uh, paramedic has some kind of medical ethos, you know, the yeah. Hippocratic oath, all that kind of stuff. It just, w- without, you know, one of the big boss games actually taking the time to maybe detailing her descent or the path that leads her there, it just comes out very empty. And it's just like, oh, you just chose a character that exists to. Yeah. Um, it's not off. like, it's not like, uh, Otacon's father, who like the games, like the Thomas Snake games, do a pretty good job of painting him as a, at the very least, morally dubious person. So mm-hmm. when he shows up in in the in the Big Boss games and he's just like the worst piece of shit on the earth, it's fine. It, it's a little heavy handed, but it it makes sense. It fits. And, and, and this just of, doesn't. This doesn't. It just doesn't fit. Yeah. And part of it is also that. For as much of a shithead as Huey Emmerich is, we do get a lot of work with Otacon trying to, you know, uh, deal with the sins of the father and mm-hmm. kind of redeem that. Whereas if, you know, Doc, if like, you know, it isn't Naomi's character in this game, but if she was in some way trying to redeem the sins of paramedic before her, may you know, not as like, you know, a sins of the father, but just like the previous generation of scientist or yeah. you know, medical expert, then maybe you can come up with something a little more meaningful. But it like you said, it's just it's a plot point without anything really, you know, buttressing it up within the saga or, you know, in terms of character work or theme that really makes it land the way that basically all the other characters kind of work into this. Um, Because I do think like the idea of Zero starting the Patriots and Big Boss being the center of his plan, that stuff all pretty much works for me. I mm-hmm. get that. Um, it again, it's just really that trying to shoehorn these characters in. Well, in the, in the Patriots um, in particular, like the AI Patriots are portrayed as like they went out of control. Like it wasn't supposed mm-hmm. to be this. Mm-hmm, Whereas mm-hmm. there's really nothing you can do with that to make it make paramedic make sense. Right. And uh, we'll we'll kind of put a pin in this for now. We will kind of talk about like fan service and continuity and trying to wrap things up in our, uh, what's it called? Kind of our wrap up episode on MGS4. And then maybe we can talk a little more to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, we've kind of been belaboring the issue with this ever since we started MGS3, to be honest. Um, so we're probably not covering as much new ground. As I'm, I'm not, I'm not a person who thinks that that like I ruined, like I'm not somebody... Rise of Skywalker is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. I'm not going to be like, it ruins all of Star Wars now. Like, that's not how that works. But it is just, it's just disquieting. It just, it doesn't, it really is distasteful. Like, it doesn't leave a good taste in my mouth to think about. Yeah, yeah. I don't like it. Jumping back to the story, Snake gets a call from Otacon out of the blue, saying Naomi's escaped. 
Coincidentally, just at that moment, the church is accosted by a guy in a trench coat, which actually turns out to be three scarabs or dwarf gecko. To me, this is a riff on the trope of three kids in a trench coat pretending to be an adult. (laughs) Scarabs are small unmanned robots with three arms, complete with human hands and fingers, that makes them really good at tracking Snake into every possible hiding space. Eva busts out her Chinese imitation Mauser, just like from MGS3, and takes them out, no sweat. Their cover has been blown, though. Otacon lets Snake know that Gecko and PMC forces are just five minutes out. Eva mobilizes her Paradise Lost militia, which has a bunch of decoy vans and soldiers ready to distract the PMC while the corpse of Big Boss is secretly shuttled away via an underground viaduct. We're about to start our second vehicle set piece of MGS4, this time riding on the back of Eva's Triumph motorcycle. Are you sure about this? (laughs) I only get off my bike when I fall in love. Call me Eva. One thing that hit me this time through is just how nice it is to see two quote-unquote older characters lead an action set piece like this. Sure, games aren't movies, and it's not like this is supposed to be a great win for representation of old people, but Hollywood tends to not have older actors lead action films, and even less so older women. So, not a big thing, but it is nice to see our uh, senior citizen heroes get get some spotlight here. Well, it's also nice in the context of Japanese video games, where, uh, you know, the old trope in, in, like, Final Fantasy, or even just JRPGs in general, is that, like, <laughs> they always have one grizzled veteran character, and you look, and it's, like, 27. You're like, what the fuck? <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like, Barrett in FF7 is supposed to be, like, the old, he's, like, 32. It's, like, ancient. So, that, that tweet... Yes. <laughs> the oldest player that's ever lived, 36 years old. Incredible. It's a miracle he's still alive. <laughs> the following motorcycle set piece breaks down into two parts. The first, which I'll call the PMC sequence, you're riding on Eva's bike, but you're only able to use one handed weapons such as pistols, small machine guns, and projectiles. Um, You are tailing behind a van, which you are led to believe has Big Boss's corpse in it, and that van has a life bar, and you must protect it as the PMC troops will attack it just as much as it will attack you. Maybe even more so. Mm -hmm. You'll be accosted by Gecko, PMC troops, and frogs during this sequence, which is all pretty much very cinematic and generally well shot. When you aren't actually aiming or shouldering your weapon, the camera will cut to more cinematic angles for you automatically, so you can just kind of enjoy it if you wish. There are a couple slow-mo moments in the in the chase sequence, uh, such as when you're jumping, uh, when the motorcycle jumps on a ramp, and also when you're kind of sliding under some uh, overturned Humvees. And when it slows down, you're able to keep shooting and popping shots uh, if you want to. So kind of a cool uh, moment, very kind of matrixy, a mm-hmm. little bit of max pain in there, I'd imagine. Um, but overall, just a well-shot sequence, if nothing else. I didn't think about that. He probably loves max pain. I'm sure he's played it. I'm going to search his uh, Twitter after this just to see if he's talked about the Max Payne movie at all. Four stars. Great. (laughs) 
the second part of the motorcycle sequence is actually a prelude to your Raging Raven boss fight. Uh, we haven't really discussed this, but it's kind of come up that every one of the Beauty and the Beast uh, boss sequences, you basically have to take on the frogs first before yeah. you fight the beast proper. Um, usually they're just kind of intermingled in the map, uh, like with uh, Laughing Octopus or during the Crying Wolf fight and the Screaming Mantis fight. They're actually part of the ongoing boss battle. But here you kind of get that um, in this motorcycle sequence to accompany the Raging Raven boss fight. Um, Raven will have a life bar and, you know, psych meter as well, but you can't actually do damage to her during the sequence. You can take out her Raven drones overhead and there will be a continuing, uh, what's it called? Onslaught of frogs and geckos while you're kind of facing Raven during the sequence. Um, I do like that there is, uh, another, you know, this is kind of supposed to be part of the Raging Raven boss battle in a way, mm -hmm. or at least part of an, that encounter. And I kind of like that aspect of it because you really don't have a lot of vehicle boss fighty kind of things in Metal Gear Solid. Um, but that said, I kind of wish these two parts connected a little bit better, like this part and the oncoming Raging Raven actual boss fight. Like if you did damage to her here or hit her with yeah. a trank dart, that it would reflect in that oncoming battle. Anything you want to say about the motorcycle sequence before we move on? I the whole I like the whole Raging Raven sequence, but this is the weak part of it. I like the boss fight in general, so I, I think it's probably my favorite in the game. Mm -hmm. So eventually, in typical Hollywood fashion, the minute you think you've given the enemy the slip, Raven swoops down and lands a grenade round that takes out Eva and Snake, as well as the decoy van they were protecting. Snake pulls himself to his feet, but in a bit of deja vu, Eva is impaled on a fence spoke. Basically in the same spot, she was stuck by the tree branch in the escape from Groznygrad during Snake Eater. Eva even has a flashback to Naked Snake's face when Old Snake comes to help her. Again, that eye patch doing a lot of work to make Snake the proxy for his father. Unlike last time though, Eva unpales herself without Snake's help. Snake then gives her a gun to watch the van, and herself, while Snake makes his way up to Echo's Beacon, where he will face the next of the BMB Corps, Raging Raven. Give me your anger, Snake! Let it boil to the surface! Let your fury flow freely! Anger begets anger! Come on! Show me your rage! So, modeling and voice actor credits for Raging Raven, the beauty voice is done by Nika Futterman, and the beast voice, as always, is done by Fred Tadashore. Nika Futterman, another another Catwoman actress. <laughs> there you go. Sure, sure. And uh, the motion capture is done by Yumi Kikuchi, which, who is a friend of Kojima. And if you recall to the opening of Operation Snake Eater in MGS3, when Snake is inserted via drone, you can go into first person, and on the ceiling of the drone is a sexy swimsuit model poster and that sexy poster is yumi kikuchi so raven's backstory again we kind of gloss over these because they're overwrought and ridiculous but she's from a k which is a territory of indonesia uh, she was caged by mad soldiers uh, with other children and they were kind of left to die Ravens eventually came to feast on the children, uh, and they ended up killing all the children except her. Instead, for her, they freed her bonds, and that's where she kind of had her mental break and became Raging Raven. 
The associated PMC for Raven is Ravensword, which is a U.S.-based private military company that specializes in a police and security force detail um, where you'll see most of the soldiers wearing riot gear. And this, again, is a play on themes of police militarization falling out of the war on terror. The slogan for Ravensword is never a shot in the dark, which to me might be an oblique Pink Panther reference, not the animated Pink Panther, but Inspector Clouseau as played by Peter Sellers. Um, And uh, A Shot in the Dark is my favorite of those original Pink Panther films. I actually don't know if Pink Panther has any cachet in the current pop culture zeitgeist, either as Inspector Clouseau or the pink animated panther that some of you may know probably more as steve martin at this point which is sad oh god i didn't even think about that the rare misfire in his career honestly mm-hmm. and then raven sword was deployed in this sector of eastern europe to help secure a u.s oil pipeline which again plays on <laughs> themes of imperialism and the petrodollar which we discussed in our wrap-up for metal gear solid 2 the logo for Raven Sword is a raven in crosshairs, which pretty cool, but not the coolest of the PMC logos. So getting to the boss fight here, we'll start with the arena. The tower that you're going to be fighting uh, Raging Raven in is called Echo's Beacon, as mentioned. And I don't know if this is supposed to like explicitly be a reference to the story of Echo, who you know comes from Greek mythology. She was a nymph who had relations with Zeus, which, you know, who didn't? Um, but Hera, in response to her, uh, Zeus's infidelity, cursed Echo with the ability to only repeat what other people say. The thematic link here could be the fact that basically everything in MGS4, including these Beauty and the Beast uh, bosses, are supposed to be an echo of things we've seen previously in the Metal Gear saga. The watchtower itself has multiple levels, three uh, specifically, with a central uh, staircase kind of connecting them all together. Um, A lot of the walls and barriers in this location can be blown away, as we've talked about the kind of um, dynamic environment of Metal Gear Solid 4. The first two floors have a lot of open space, uh, places where uh, Raven might fly in, fly in on, and you will engage with her, you know, kind of in the traditional shoot 'em out fashion. And then the upper story is mostly a catwalk, um, which is usually surrounded by a bunch of those Raven drones patrolling and looking out for you. And with this elevation, be careful because you can be blown off the sides or fall to your death uh, if you know you kind of just take a missile at the wrong time in the wrong yep. spot. And while this location is not a church, it still is very evocative of a church aesthetic with the candles, with the architecture, um, which keeps with the scenes uh, with Eva from earlier. And Raven and her drones even have a certain kind of angelic quality to them because, you know, angels have wings, so I hear. Or they're gargoyles. Oh, that's actually another another great uh, one. And gargoyles would be another play on the Beauty and the Beast theme, um, or kind of that like existing between man and beast aesthetic that a lot of uh, you know these beast characters are getting at. Speaking to the weapons and tactics uh, in fighting uh, Raging Raven, she mainly uses her grenade launcher and uh, uh, missiles that are attached to her drone wings. She'll blow through walls. Uh, she'll, you know, kind of, you know, dive at you and kind of ram you. 
She also has giant prosthetic claws attached to her feet, which she can use to pick her up. Um, it's kind of very similar to the Vulture in Spider-Man Homecoming for your token Marvel reference for the episode. Uh, she also has uh, fire from her jetpack, which can be used to burn you, which is also very similar to the Fury from MGS3, uh, who, you know, kind of his jetpack could also burn you when he would ignite for takeoff. The unmanned Raven drones are basically the same as her wings, and theoretically she can swap out her wings for a different pair. Um, it's very, you know, functional that way, I guess. And at times her suit will actually overheat and she'll seek refuge on nearby rooftops, which makes her vulnerable to sniper or rocket fire, whatever you choose. Um, knowing me, because I'm a you know a non-lethal person, um, I generally use the shotgun V-ring on her when engaging with her in close quarters. And then when she is overheating, I'll use the Mosin Nagant uh, tranquilizer sniper rifle. But again, this is not a weapon you can usually purchase at this point through your first time playing this game. So that's usually a subsequent playthrough thing. And just other strategy, I tend to stick to the top floor just because it's kind of very easy to hide in the stairwell and then kind of just pop out and shoot at her uh, whenever you have a chance. Yeah, it's a classic boss strategy of having a spot you can go to to hide, popping out and doing damage. It's gla- it's great. It works well. <laughs> yeah, I love the multiple levels in it. Um, I love just that the boss fight takes place at night. Um, it is a really cool setting. It is one of the uh, one of the better boss fights of the beast. Um, kind of playing through them, I'm kind of a little warmer on the beast fights than I was previously. Mostly in the sense that they're all pretty fine. Um, yeah. None of them are blowing your socks off like Psycho Mantis or the End, um, but all of them are generally still kind of enjoyable to some degree. They they work too as um, this is why I, why I didn't play. In the, I, I played lethally. They work is just like oh, I have all this ammo saved up. Might as well use it places too, which mm-hmm. is I think if nothing else is at least a competent way to design bosses. Mm-hmm. And then your victory token for uh, beating Raven, you get her grenade launcher, which is actually a weapon I use quite a bit, um, especially against the scarabs and uh, dwarf gecko that you're going to face in Act 4 and Act 5. One thing you can do with the grenade launcher here is that you can change what kind of ammo you load it with uh, when you're doing the weapon select menu. You can switch between a regular grenade, a white phosphorus grenade, uh, which, you know, if you want to do war crimes and stuff like that, but also uh, stun grenades and smoke grenades as well. Um, Something that you know, future Metal Gear Solid games will also do where you can have a grenade launcher shoot different ammo, but usually um, those weapons, like you can have one grenade launcher for stun grenades, one grenade launcher for yeah. yep. you know smoke grenades. It won't be all built into one, which actually kind of works if you think of this as like chronologically the most advanced game, um, at least of the solid titles. Um, it makes sense that this grenade launch- launcher can do multiple ammo, but the ones during the big boss games of the 70s and 80s, um, you're kind of tied to one set of ammo. Yeah. After Raven's defeat, you get the requisite Drebin backstory call, and Snake then returns to check up on Eva. She lets him know that the van they rode with were all decoys, and Big Boss's body was already moving downriver via a Pix, which is some kind of stealth boat. Eva takes one last look at her mangled bike, noting that her own catchphrase about only getting off when she falls dead may just be about to come true. Snake and Eva take to the sewers, though a scarab drone watches them as they do. Snake, what's gotten into you? 
Don't you harm another hair on her head. Not one. Got it? Snake! Why, you... What the hell are you thinking? Attacking Big Mama like that. Whatever happened to respecting your elders? Oh, for God's sake. Snake, you've got to protect Big Mama from enemy attacks. We can't afford to lose her. We're going to cut the recap there because what happens next is worthy of its own episode, in which we'll break down fully the Patriot AIs as well as Liquid Ocelot. It's about the length of an episode on its own. No kidding. So instead today, I wanted to wrap up by briefly touching on one of the more well-known cut portions from this game, an EVA escort mission through the sewers um, and dovetail into kind of a larger discussion about the amount of gameplay in this act and this game, which Brian and I have been talking about throughout our coverage of MGS4. So just to give you a brief overview of what the cut EVA escort mission is, we played you in with some audio from it. Uh, and most of what we know about this cut portion comes from this cut audio of Otacon with a little bit of uh, David Hayter snake thrown in there as well. The sequence was supposed to be a callback to the escort mission of Eva from MGS3, including having to uh, give her food for health. And there's was even going to be a prompt where you inject her with the syringe to heal her, which was supposed to be kind of how you learn the mechanics that you would end up using on Vamp in Act 4. Um, but that was all cut, so you kind of had to figure out the vamp part on your own. <laughs> we'll we'll get to that when we do. Um, and then in the sequence, you're going to navigate the sewers while avoiding enemy patrols and gecko. Um, it's not quite clear if they're referring to the you know U.S. Army Irving, the taller you know dinosaur-like gecko, or the smaller scarabs, you know the balls on hands. Um, and the sewer map that you were going to work through was actually based on a Metal Gear Online map called Tomb of the Tubes. Uh, Metal Gear Online, if you recall, was launched with Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater. Enemies during this portion supposedly used chemical weapons to, you know, kind of flush Snake and Eva out of the sewers. And Otacon makes mention of not having a gas mask in the audio, which is a bit of a callback to the first Metal Gear Solid, where there is that um, gas portion hallway, I believe, when you're trying to get to Otacon and you have to equip the gas mask to get past it. Mm -hmm. Um, there also appears to be a puzzle of sorts built into the sequence with water doors you can open and close, which I don't know if that's supposed to be water temple vibes. I hope not. But, uh, you know, I think there's supposed to be some kind of puzzle on top of the escort mission built into this, which is, you know, would be an escalation of the simple escort mission from MGS3. And there's even audio of some of the handles to doors kind of breaking off, which vaguely reminds me of what happened in the tanker incident on MGS2, where there would be certain uh, doors where a uh, snake would grab the handle and then the handle would just fall right off. And then the end of the sequence was... Uh, supposed to be uh, was supposed to end with rats kind of leading you out of the sewers, kind of like rats led you through the vents of MGS One, um, and then uh, that comes with some fun audio of Otacon saying you should donate to the ASPCA, which is basically the Anti Cruelty Society for Animals, because of how much animals help you on your missions. So we'll kind of use that to dovetail into you know Brian, what do you think about this cut mission? And where are we with gameplay in terms of this act and MGS4 as a whole? Uh, my opinion about this cut mission is that it, it honestly kind of sounds like a Resident Evil section. That's actually a good call. <laughs> um, that, that's So, yeah, I don't know. Probably would have been fine. 
I don't know. I, I don't think people were like blown away by the Eva escort mission in the first place. So I, yeah, doing a second one is probably not necessary. Yeah, um, I think one of the more astute points uh, you had in our MGS3 coverage was how necessary that Eva escort mission was Pace for, pacing, uh, for, yeah. the, for the pacing. And before getting to the boss, after all the big Shagohad and motorcycle stuff, it was really necessary. Whereas here, beating Raging Raven and then going into a super long cutscene, I mean, not ideal. I would obviously love to play more, but I don't feel like it had the same pacing concerns where you really no. needed to put something here now. Well, I think at this point anyway of this game, your pacing concerns are <laughs> sort of at the end, like it's a little too late. Yeah. Um, I would say the first act is probably perfectly paced. Um, and then after that, it kind of starts to go off the rails slowly but surely. Yeah. I think four is well paced because well because four has one one speed, and then mm-hmm. it, at the very end of its act it goes into maximum overdrive like warp four four hundred. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that's that's fine. That's that's a way that's a way that's at least has been paced unlike this and two and five. Jesus. Yeah. Um, well, I'll defend five, but I'll wait till we do that next week. Well, it's it's <laughs> it's more just like like it's just like. No, I mean, I mean the axe, not the game. Oh, oh, sorry, 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 sorry. Yeah, yeah, like, like the. Uh, no, I, I, I like body spacing, MGSV's spacing. Um, I just more like like Act Five. It's just, it, no, it was not it, first draft, not edited in any way. Yeah, yeah. And I think uh, what kind of hurts the pacing for Act Three is that that Big Mama Paradise Lost sequence is literally like 30, 35 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's just like a when, when you have a save in the middle of a cutscene that kind of tells you that you know the pacing might be off, especially when if you know what you're doing and on an easier difficulty, the tailing sequence might take you all of ten minutes, really. Maybe. Yeah, it might not even be that long, especially if you're really good at clearing the path for the resistance members. So you're looking at what like maybe a ten minute tailing sequence, uh, maybe probably you know probably like six or seven total on the motorcycle. And then however long you fight Raven for, which that's a little more variable, but that's all the gameplay in Act 3. Yep. And then you have the giant uh, cutscene that we'll talk about next episode that probably goes on 40 to 50 minutes, maybe. Um, maybe it's not it's that long. It's but at least 30. Yeah, it is. It is a good chunk of time there for this podcast when I've been playing through this game. The end of Act 3, like what we're going to cover in our next episode, that was just one play session for me. And I did not, like, I just started with the cutscene with uh, Ocelot. I ended when it ended. And that was basically, like, an hour of my time. And then I just stopped. And I'm like, I'll go to Shadow Moses next time. So, um, I think we talked about it in our Act 2 wrap-up episode. I would have enjoyed all of these acts more if like it kind of started out with, okay, here's a traditional stealth section where you do your normal sneaking. Mm-hmm. Then you have your gimmicky stealth section, kind of like the tracking sequence in um, act two or the tailing sequence here in act three. And then, you know, your boss battle and your set piece. I feel like that would be, you know, better or just more gameplay. And ultimately yeah. my biggest complaints with MGS4 is just, I wish I could play it more. I wish, especially in act three and act five, um, there's just more kind of sandbox stuff yeah. uh, where you can explore as opposed to like, you're on a time limit or you're always under caution or you're tailing someone. So you can't let them out of your sights. I think that's the other, I think that's a minor reason why the, uh, the Dr. Clark stuff 
bothers me so much is that Act 3 is so obviously designed just to get to these cutscenes. Like, that's the whole point. And this is what you're giving me? Like, that's... Like, the whole the whole reason I'm here is to, to learn this stuff, and it's stuff that's going to make me angry? Fuck off. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, Act 3 is fine. Act 3 is just... Weird. I, I think the uh, the big cutscene, too, and, and well, the first big cutscene, the, the big model cutscene, I think that's probably the biggest... Like, when people always talk about these games having, like, being more cutscene in the game, that's, like, the one I think of. Because mm-hmm. it's just, like, comical, almost. Yeah. Um, it's the and- most... It's the most... Uh, I was just watching, actually, Video Game Donkey just had a, a video where he replayed Death Stranding and was more complimentary to it. And he made a good point. The, uh, the rabbit hole style cutscene. That's what that is, where it's, like... You get... You, you, as he describes it, you hear about a robot, then you hear about how the robot was made, then you hear about who designed the robot, then you hear about the controls of the robot, then you hear about where the products were made for the robot. And that like that works really well in an espionage thriller. But at this point of this game, it's not an espionage thriller. Like, I don't know. It works well for two. Having these huge, confusing, like 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 rabbit hole thing. Like where you just keep hearing more and more shit over and over and over. That works really well for a game where the point is that you're supposed to be confused and nothing's real and nothing's true and you don't know where you're going. This is supposed to be the game that clears everything up and you're just gonna give us a 40-minute cuts. People just talking about like minutia over and over like it's just more tedious than than it is like it's not fulfilling yeah and And you mentioned that it's supposed to be more like a spy thriller and we did talk about this act kind of having spy thriller vibes Mm -hmm. but mgs4 on the whole is closer to an action movie um especially because it's supposed to be somewhat of a critique of first person shooters and the first person shooter landscape um and you know there are a ton of other long cutscenes, like the one we'll talk about next time the one at the end of shadow moses and obviously the one at the end of the game, but those don't feel like plopped into the middle of like kind of an ongoing act. So even if they are long and overwrought and trust me, the next one is long and overwrought. um, It, it it doesn't feel like it's breaking something up or you're not waiting to get to the next thing. Like, yeah, yeah. I'm fine. Like it's the end of the act. I can put the controller down and just kind of watch for a little while, but in the middle of a act um, that's already kind of light on gameplay, it definitely just feels a little clunkier. And those other cutscenes too, especially the the Shadow Moses one, and, and even the the Liquid Aqua one coming up. Those ones, those cutscenes have shit happening. Mm-hmm. Those are more like the MGS three cutscenes, where there's like kinetic action, characters interacting, and I mean the CQC thing is really cool. I do really like that. But like other than that, it's just like, oh yeah, yeah. Um, what what I, my love is really just for this that's uh, action the fight choreography they yeah. do that's yeah, great um, just because it's really great because it's all close quarters snake doesn't use lethal force um, there's even like some uh, um, there's a point where like he kind of holds up a guy and the guy just lays down kind of like you can do in this game which is kind of mm-hmm. fun it's like kind of the mechanics of the game being brought to life in a cutscene uh, all that's good it, it you know obviously gives me vibes of uh, naked snake and the boss fighting in uh, MGS three. But my love for that is only the choreography. Um, and I do like, so I do like the references to some of the previous, like the posters for Metal Gear Solid 3 mm-hmm. on the wall. Um, and I'm not going to spoil it now, but I like in some of like the, you know, rabbit hole cutscenes how they, you know, show footage of previous Metal Gear Solid games. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those are all nice flourishes, but it's just so much and so long. And when you're, kind of, you know, ruining, Na- uh, not Naomi, Dr. Clark's character or paramedic's character. Um, it, like you said, it just kind of leaves a bad taste in your mouth and there's not enough 
gameplay to kind of make up for it or to make you kind of push that to the back of the mind. Um, and there's also like uh this is this is the cutscene, that's the cutscene more than any other in all these games where you really wonder like who stored like when they were storyboarding this, like what were they doing? Like like not not like in a way like when you when they got this script and they looked at each other, they're like, how are we gonna storyboard this? I think that's really the because like what do you even do? Right. Um, and like you said, that scene is also Big Mama and Snake just talking, whereas the scene we're about to cover next time, um, Ocelot's doing his insurrection while things are happening. And, 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 then, and, and, and Ocelot's on screen also, that's important. Yeah, whenever Ocelot's on screen, uh, it's great. And whenever Ocelot's not on screen, all the other characters should be asking, where's Ocelot? Um, but yeah, no, I think it's just, there are other things like, at the end of Shadow Moses is the reveal of Outer Haven. So there's always other stuff. It's not always just two people sitting around and talking. Um, for the most part, this game... Um, well, this is actually brings up... Because this is also an issue with Act 2. Because you have like a big Naomi Snake like 30-minute cutscene right before you get into the Laughing Octopus battle. And <laughs> that one works a little better because there's more gameplay on both sides of the cutscene. But it does not feel as fun because it's just two people sitting in a room and talking. It's also it's be, also yeah. it's also uh, that cutscene is more specifically talking about the events of this current game that we are playing, like mm-hmm. what. Whereas this one is is again probably the guiltiest of in the entire series of being about the other games. It's like yes. I don't. That's a big issue with this game in particular. Yes, um, it, it is so focused on filling in a timeline. Um, that you know who cares to a certain extent um like you need to know some of the details of what you know the patriots were founded but Mm -hmm. it is very very invested in drawing a straight line through them which included a straight line that includes portable ops which is now semi-canonical non-canonical um and which it doesn't matter i know mgs has always played with the idea of canon but well except for in this game where everything has to be explained yes it's George Lucas syndrome too much. Like, I don't care. Yeah. I, I don't care. I don't care how uh, you see Boba Fett as a kid. I don't care. Who cares? What? You don't like Django Fett? Uh, Django's cool. I just like, it's, 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 you think this thing you like, don't you want to see every single plot point and how it was made and meticulously go through all this shit? It's like, I don't care. Yeah. I just like the thing that I like. Snake, come back in one piece. I will. Uh, promise me. So that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsansfrontieres at gmail.com and at podsansfront on Twitter and Instagram.com. You can support this podcast by signing up for my Patreon at patreon.com slash manuclearbomb. Who's me? I've been Manu. I'm Brian Nanos. We got me where I am today. Thumbs up. Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, aka DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast application. So until next time, here's to you.
and stopping recording now.